This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did Cold War Anxieties birth great 1980s films? Or did great 1980s films influence Cold War policies? Find a safe spot under a table and let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. What? We've had that this whole time. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of the Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of, oh, we got to be something else, from a couple of not Russians. <laughs> <laughs> from a couple of not Russians. Hey, my name is Will, and joining me as always is my friend and co-host, Ray. How you doing, comrade? <laughs> wait a second. You're sending Mick... Oh, wait, I get it. Not Russians. Wink, wink. We're Americans. Mm-hmm. Today on the show, we're going to be talking about Cold War pop culture when our guest, Dr. Professor Brian Kogan, joins us a little bit later. Before that, we're going to be deciding the next eight matches in the Sweet 16 in our Idiots Smash Madness 2021. Nailed it. Hey, but before we do any of that, remember to like and rate and review and subscribe. All those things that will help other folks find the Idiots because it really does help. And I know we had a couple of folks today do that. Yeah, and be like whoever it was. (laughs) Whoever it was. (laughs) Whoever you were, that one person. Whoever you were, thanks a lot. You know who you are. So yeah, everybody else be like them. Wow. A lot of our show, I feel like it's going to be us just not being specific. Ooh, I see. This is like a very spy espionage kind of, it's thing that non, non-Russians would do. It's normal American behavior. It's, yeah. It's normal American behavior to make references to things. Yes. Not that seem like they're code, but it's normal right. American stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's do the normal American 80s news. It's typical eagle in the nest stuff. Now all of our stories should be coded. Or maybe they are. Hey, today on 80s News, we have finally learned who the villain, who will be playing the villain in the upcoming Dungeons & Dragons film. Uh, This is courtesy of The Hollywood Reporter. Of course, we know that the folks behind New Line's sleeper hit Game Night are bringing us this film that adapts our very favorite fantasy role-playing game uh, into a movie. Um, it's been done before, but this we've got a lot of high hopes for this one. We already knew that Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez were in it. Now we've learned that the villain, the main attag- antagonist uh, of the film, is going to be played by none other than Hugh Grant. Balls. Is that a, a hip thing that kids say when they really like something? That's my review of his casting. Oh, I see. Uh, I'm not happy with this one. Well, some of the best villains are always British for some reason. <laughs> In American films, there's got to be a better British guy than hmm. this one. Well, you know, it's D&D, so maybe he'll be made up. Uh, All I can see him in is a wizard hat, mm-hmm. just talking gibberish. Like it's kind of a goof. And, and, you know, I, I, here's what I see. He's got a wizard hat on and he's yeah. yapping and Chris Pine just walks up to him and just punches him right in the face. Movie's mm-hmm. over. Mm, it's a short film. It's a short film. Mm. You know, I he, love Chris Pine. I think he's great. And I was excited for that one, but this one's does not make me excited. I'm trying to think of a time we've seen Hugh Grant play someone other than a fumfering sort of, you know, uh, love interest in a film. Oh, you know, he actually plays the bad guy in Paddington too, but 
it's, it's, that film is great, by the way. Both of those Paddington films are fantastic. The second one may be better than the first. Yeah. Yeah. This reminds me of Ray Liotta playing a wizard, which was oh. not believable. Well, now you're diminishing my hopes in this film. Well, keep in mind, he could still get fired. <laughs> That's your hope. They could start doing screen testing and mm -hmm. stuff, and they could go, he's not right. Get him out of here. They'll go through his Twitter and find out some awful joke, quote unquote joke he said 20 years ago. Boom, yeah. gone. Let me see what I can do. <laughs> see what we can Photoshop. <laughs> uh, we've also learned that uh, Sophia Lillis is also going to be in the film. Of course, she is best known for playing the only female member of the Losers in the recent film adaptation of Stephen King's It. Also, garbage movie. Oh, you didn't like the It films? Those were trash. Oh, my goodness. I liked both of them. I thought they were both great. The first one was set in the 80s, and yeah. you couldn't even tell because everything mm. looked like the 50s and 60s. Yeah. Because they forgot they rewrote it and then never fixed the sets. They were like, throw an Iron Maiden t-shirt on that kid. Yeah, mm. that'll fix it. Play some 80s tunes. I've told you this before, but yes. yeah. So those two hires, not happy. Wow. Now I'm feeling really bummed out. I was, we were straight up excited for this film a couple of weeks ago when we heard Chris Pine was cast. Yeah, I was excited. You know, I just thought that Hugh Grant was also in that uh, HBO series that I didn't watch, The Undoing. I don't know what it's about, but I think he might be the bad guy in that. And I think that's a spoiler. Well, let me ask you this. Yeah. Are you going to bank on a dude that was in a show you didn't even watch? <laughs> but you're right. I haven't been compelled to see it. So maybe he's not going to get me to the theater, certainly. Well, all right. Fingers crossed he gets fired. <laughs> Hopefully he rolls a one. Yeah. Fumbles. Oh, that would be awesome if they go in for auditions and they each give him a 20-sided <laughs> dice and they're like, all right, only two of you can stay. <laughs> Whoever rolls higher gets gets to stay. What if it's Hugh Grant and Ray Liotta are rolling, though? Oh, no. Then we don't have to watch the movie. All right. Hey, in other 80s news, we have just recently learned that we will now be able to get, uh, let's see, this is via a website. Okay, this is from Friday the 13th franchise.com, which seems to be a website that just focuses on news related to the Friday the 13th franchise. It's in the name. This past September, they reported that La La Land Records was preparing to release the first official CD soundtrack for part... <laughs> I gotta read all these Roman letter numbers. <laughs> part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. So apparently we... we Certainly there was a soundtrack, but if you wanted it, you had to hunt it down on eBay and pay some kind of ridiculous amount of money to get the vinyl, I think. Yeah, it was only released on vinyl. Now, is the music so great that it's the thing that folks will want to get? How in the world are you going to get by in this life mm -hmm. without... For an hour and a half straight. Why? Well, I, I just got it. I'm going to loop what you just did. You're telling me I could sell that and make money? Yeah. I mean, somebody did it. Who did that one? Because there's the bull where they were saying, he's not saying cha 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 ha ha ha. Yeah. He's saying kill, 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 her, her, her. <laughs> yes. And there's no way in hell I believe that because it definitely, everyone who's ever done it says cha 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 ha ha ha. Yeah. Let's see. It was made by Harry Manfredini. Ah, I know that name. Oh, here it is. There's actually, Mental Floss did a, a story in 2018, called, uh, the title of the real story behind Friday the 13th's iconic whisper sound effect. Most people have been repeating it as ch 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 However, the film's composer, Harry Manfredini, has set the record straight in past interviews. In 2015, he told Gun Media that the sounds are actually it was inspired by the consonant-heavy Polish scores that he was studying at the time. He decided to reduce the, the words kill and mommy down to two syllables. 
These words were taken directly from a scene in the original 80 film in which uh, Pamela Voorhees says, kill her mommy in Jason's voice. I don't care what he says. He's a liar. Well, because <laughs> it does sound like... <laughs> Anybody who's ever heard that knows it's ch 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 ha 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 All right. So, hey, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, what's interesting is this, uh, back to the story from uh, the Friday the 13th, uh, thir- Friday the 13th franchise.com. It's going to be available on CD, it says. Is that... So, I mean, that's not even a current media to get it in. It's, that's even itself, you know, hard to come by, I think. So, yeah, for a lot of people, that'll be absolutely worthless. Well, hey, maybe in another 30 years, they'll put it on iTunes. Hmm. In other 80s news, we have learned from Deadline.com that the controversial horror film Silent Night, Deadly Night is getting a reboot from the Jeepers Creepers Reborn outfit. So yeah, Orwo Studios and Black Hanger Studios have acquired the remake rights to the controversial 1984 slasher film. You know the film very well. And in fact, mm-hmm. you know, in our recent Christmas episode just a couple of months ago, you indicated that uh, when, when I put this question to you, you indicated this is definitely a Christmas movie. Absolutely. And that's part of the controversy that they had when the film came out in the 1980s was because they it was billed and promoted as a Christmas film. Santa Claus, the Santa Claus uh, murderer in the film featured heavily in the ads. The tagline was something like, you've made it through Halloween, now try and survive Christmas. That's right. <laughs> the National P- Parent and Teacher Association fought to have the film removed from theaters because they were protests against the, quote, Christmas movie. Siskel and Ebert <laughs> were among those to condemn it. Siskel hated it so much, he actually read aloud the names of the production crew on air during their show and then concluded telling shame on you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this movie is one of those things that's great about the 80s. Mm. It's, it's a great movie. It's a what-if movie. Hmm. And by the way, I think it's by part three or, or four yeah. of the franchise, it's not even set at Christmas anymore. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So it, it's not another holiday. It's just a different time of year. It's the same name. It's just huh. a different part of the year. Now, is it someone avenging their parents from a... Uh, I think Mickey Rourke oh. plays a toy maker in one of them. Huh. And uh, he goes on a murderous rampage. It's been a long time since I watched these movies. Going to put that on my list. Put it on the list. You know, all the controversy back in 1984 when it came out led to TriStar pulling ads for the film six days after it was released. And then the film itself was withdrawn from theaters. But despite all that, or because of all that, because, you know, we've talked about before, you know, bad publicity, especially for films like this, you know, just drives off the box office. It outgrossed Nightmare on Elm Street, which opened that uh, same weekend. Before being pulled down from the theaters, it took in more than $2.4 million, which was three times its budget in just 10 days. So if you ever want anything to be success, certainly in the 1980s, get a bunch of parents mad at you about it. Technically, these days, that shouldn't be difficult. To get parents mad about something? Yeah, with our culture the way it is right now, it shouldn't be hard to get people wound up. Yeah, maybe, but it seems like there's just so much we're also desensitized to. Like, I don't think this would be controversial today, right? There's definitely more terrible films than this that stay in the movie theaters for longer than 10 days. I'll tell you what, I think they need to re-release Sleepaway Camp. Mm. People be all up in arms. For that final scene in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this would be an interesting experiment. See where we are as a society. Yeah, I wonder if in the 1980s, a film like, uh, what was that film where the guy, the doctor's sewing people's faces to other people's butts and uh, Human Centipede. 
Came out just oh, a few years a, ago. Yeah, that's a newer movie. Yeah. yeah, no, I'm saying, I wonder if in the 1980s, would the parents been up in arms? My point is, that film, you know, as controversial as it was, is, it was still in the theaters. The puppets would have been amazing <laughs> for that movie back in the 80s. <laughs> Wait, puppets, the special human effects. Yeah. It would have looked like a Muppet oh, thing. Oh, my God. Imagine the music's going, bah, rump, bump, bump, as it's crawling across the floor. Oh, God. <laughs> You made it more horrifying. Oh, that's terrible. Henson's Henson's like, Jesus Christ, how did I get dragged into this? Who sewed all these Muppets together? All right, hey, so you're a huge uh, fan of the original film. Is this something you can get excited about? I could tell you this much. Hugh Grant's not in it. Nah, I'm not a big fan of remakes. They've already tried this one before, and they did a lousy job, so. They tried to reboot this uh, movie after the four? Yeah, it's called Silent Night. It's been... It was done a, not even a couple of years ago, I think. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah, keep trying, people. Or don't. The 80s are a fertile ground, and if you want to keep failing, just keep trying to reboot them in uh, cancel culture <laughs> society. Wait a second. You're conflating things. People tried to cancel it in the 80s. I don't think it would get canceled today. Not this movie. Yeah, we'll see. All right. Hey, that was the 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. Ugh. All right, so today on the show, like we mentioned earlier, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Brian Cogan about Cold War pop culture. So we're talking about those films, you know, that terrified us or gave us hope about our relationship with the then Soviet Union and the possible threat of uh, nuclear war, which seemed imminent. We've talked about that many times on the show. It seemed like at any moment we were going to get bombed. And we have a special thanks in our segment we'd like to call. Thank you for your cooperation. I just like to play sound effects. You know that. (laughs) Yeah, you do. Hey, special thanks to Tom Welch, who actually gave us the idea for this episode. He wrote to us in January. Hey, guys, love the podcast. Can you guys do an episode about 80s Cold War stuff like songs, films, and culture? Now, we don't have time to cover all those various types of Cold War media, so we're just going to focus on the films today. But we do plan on uh, speaking about uh, some of the other nuances uh, in the future. But thank you, Tom, for that suggestion. If you've got an idea about something that we could talk about on the show, find us on Facebook. We're the idiots. Before we get to that, though, we've got to settle some business regarding Smash Madness 2021. We're now in the Sweet 16, and we've got some uh, matches to settle here. Mm-hmm. Now, I wanted, before we got started, I wanted to tell you, you know, we've got the, the tallies, the standings are up on our website. If you go there to theidiotspod.com, you can see those. But um, our, our top five competitors right now, with a perfect bracket, Chris has got 16 points so far. Tied for second place, you've got uh, Mike, Rich, and Bart. And then uh, in third place is Frank. So they, they predicted most of the matches there. Yeah, but the first round was pretty easy. Yes. However, they didn't agree with us when we picked Sloan over Nada. They do believe Nada should have beaten. <sighs> by 73% of our folks on their brackets chose Nada instead of Sloan. I posted the video oh, yeah. of Sloan. On oh. <laughs> the Rumpus Room page right. and gave the reason I picked him right. in that uh, next to that video. Oh, so yeah. if you're curious to know why Sloan won, go yeah. watch the video. We'll just say it's his smooth moves. I mean, he's got moves. Yeah. The dude's got moves. Yeah. And, and in that clip, he's been drinking. Yeah. And he still pulls it off. So, And I think some folks took issue with the fact that, well, hey, wait a second. Nada's got a gun, right? Sure. But you've got to account for everything else. What happens in these films? And you also, you know, looking back, I didn't bring it up, but Nada won't attack a human. Yes. He only attacks aliens. He doesn't want to hurt the humans. Right. So that hurt. That hurts him too. Yeah, you're right. When he has that fight with uh, with um, Keith David's character, 
He beats. He tries to beat him up. Just to try and make him put on sunglasses. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, let's get to the this week's uh, matches. So first up, because they've made it over to the Sweet 16, our first match is John Rambo versus Mad Max Rokitansky. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Here's how I took a look at this. Yeah. Mad Max is in an apocalypse, so he's a pretty tough dude. Mm-hmm. But Rambo has that knife. Yeah. With the compass. Right. And it opens and it's yes. got like the string and crap yeah, in exactly. it. That's what I was thinking. Which could be a garrote. Right. Which is a saw. It is a saw. So this one was really hard, but I gave it to Rambo. I, I agree with you. And I was thinking, you know, and I was look, and I actually rewatched uh, Road Warrior not too long ago. So I was thinking about this too, that even if, if you want to stick with the films, Mad Max has that sawed off shotgun. Mm-hmm. For most of the film, he actually doesn't have, or I say for the, certainly the beginning of the film, first half of the film, he doesn't have any shells in it. It's actually empty. He's been bluffing. Yeah. So Yeah, and he almost walks with a limp in that movie. So Oh yeah. He's got that special uh metal uh sort like of a support. Big brace on his leg. Yeah, the brace, yeah. And Rambo's just cooking around the woods at full speed. So Yeah. All right, cool. All right. The next one is Indiana Jones versus uh what is it, John Matrix? Yeah. From Commando? Yes, right. Um, I've seen Indy kill plenty of Nazis. Mm-hmm. Commando is basically just a military guy. So I give this to Indy. Whoa. All right. We've got our first controversy here, I think. How do you think Indy's going to take him out with his gun? He's going to fist fight him, do whatever it takes. He pushed a guy this as big as, as this dude into a, a propeller to win that fight. Yeah, but there's no, uh, you know, what are those planes called? Bat wings or something? <laughs> well, yeah, but... Uh, wouldn't the plane be considered a weapon? <laughs> it's not an iconic weapon. If you're not giving Murtaugh the nail gun last week, you're not giving... It's kind of an iconic scene. Yes, yeah, true. But Murtaugh's nail gun scene's iconic too, and he didn't have a nail gun. And he's got a whip, he's got a revolver. Murtaugh was fighting Braddock. Uh. I don't care if he's got the nail gun or not, he wasn't going to win that one. So Indiana Jones and John Matrix are on the same height, but John Matrix is at least a good 200 pounds or something on him. Just pure muscle. Yeah. So if it's coming down to a fist fight. Once again, you know, Andy took the shots from that big dude mm-hmm. many times. This uh, The other thing I was thinking was, if Indy does shoot, I, I do note that someone on the internet actually counted the amount of times that, or the amount of bullets that were probably fired at John Matrix at the end of Commando. Yeah. This guy said over 3,000 after looking at the thing, and based on the weapons that were used. And he doesn't get shot. So he essentially dodged 3,000 bullets that were coming at him fairly simultaneously. So I think he can handle Indiana Jones' so, six-shooter. So the law averages says he's going to lose this time. <laughs> All right. Hey, you heard it. So this is this is our first controversy. All right. Maybe we should put it as a poll. Maybe we should put it as a poll instead of Lonnie. What do you think? If you want. First of all, I don't know if Lonnie knows who John Matrix is. That's good for me. <laughs> yes, I think she will go your way. So maybe that's what I'm saying to poll. All right, fine. Put it as a poll. I will abide by poll results in the in the rumpus room. That's All right. Fine. Hey, we're going to turn to you, the listeners, to help us decide who wins Indiana Jones versus John Matrix. Okay, next up, and this was, I think, the hardest one for me to decide, James Braddock versus Kurt Sloan. James Braddock, of course, is from Missing in Actions. Kurt Sloan is from the Kickboxer Films. We were just talking about how you know folks disagreed, thinking that uh, George Nada should have beaten Kurt Sloan last week. Uh, I don't know. So we're talking about two folks who have martial arts experience. Of course, James Braddock's p- portrayed by Chuck Norris in the films. There is a f- scene at the end of Missing in Action 2 where Braddock is fighting against a Colonel Yin. He's got a gun drawn on Colonel Yin. Colonel Yin has a gun also. He puts his gun down and says, you know, hey, let's f- find out who's the better man. 
you think you mm-hmm. don't know what Chuck Norris is going to do. He walks up with the gun, pulls the trigger. It's empty. Then they wind up fighting. I think, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to hear what you have to say and see if it persuades me one way or another. I wrote a name down, scribbled it out, wrote another name down, scribbled it out. <laughs> it's hard, right? And I went with Braddock. Huh. All right. What do you think? Uh, Cause he had the balls to pull the trigger and then fist fight him. Hmm. So he would take every avenue to win the fight. So. Yeah. And I don't think Sloan's sweet dance moves are going to save him <laughs> in this one. You know, I think I could be persuaded that it's Braddock because I do think that he does have this kind of stillness and gravitas and something yeah. about him that seems that would be more valuable in this kind of fight versus Sloan sort of bouncing around and kicking and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. All right, cool. Braddock. All right. We got, uh, yeah, Nico Toscani, Snake. Pliskin. Yeah. Obviously, mm-hmm. this is Pliskin all day long. I agree with you, but why do you say? They dropped him in a city that was a prison. <laughs> filled with murderers. Yes. Filled with nothing but murderers and gangs and just yes. the awfulest people, and he still won. So yeah. I got to take Pliskin on this one. That and he's a, got a snake tattoo on his belly. That is a good point. Yeah. I mean, if we give Snake, you know, any of his iconic weapons like the Mac-10 he has, um, which obviously when he gets captured by the Duke at the end, they take his weapons away from him. But every, when he has his gun, everybody he shoots out, yeah. he kills. Nico, you know, has a little more luck when he goes against people with guns. He's good at disarming them, but I don't know, they're a bunch of clowns. <laughs> yeah. I think Snake would be able to shoot him and probably kill, kill him. <laughs> or beat him to death with a baseball bat. Whatever it takes, I think he would do it. Poke his eyes out. Yep. I give this one to Pliskin. I agree. Oh, and how about this? Does Snake have those capsules in his neck that are going to kill him if he doesn't get back to uh, Lee Van Cleef in time? So maybe he's motivated more than Nico is. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I think that plays into mm. it too. All right, Snake Pliskin. All right, next up is Wes versus John Kreese. Mm-hmm. I think even though Wes has got this crossbow on his arm, I think he could shoot John Kreese, and John Kreese was still kick his ass. Yeah, I got Kreese in this one all day long. Military training, Cobra Kai yeah. instructor. Yeah. Wes is like eh, post-apocalyptic good, but I just don't think it's enough. Yeah. Because he's like a secondary character in the movie. Yeah. I'm taking John Kreese on this one. Yeah, I agree with you. Wes is, you know, he's like a feral animal jumping around. and But mostly how he's killing people is he's shooting with that little crossbow or he's headbutting people, He's not, which is not killing them, but right. he's headbutting guys to knock them out. I think he gets close enough to headbutt John Kreese. John Kreese is going to throat punch him before he could even do anything. Oh, definitely. So, oh, definitely. Yeah. Like I said, I think Kreese could take an arrow in the arm and he's still going to strike first. I guess that'd be strike he second. Just, he might catch it out of the air. <laughs> yes. He's got that speed of a cobra. Mm-hmm. All right, John Kreese. So, you know, the next one is Ivan Drago versus Khan Union Singh. But since we're talking to Brian about the Cold War and Ivan Drago... Ivan Drago. Why does that sound wrong? Maybe you should try saying it with a Russian accent and then it'll sound right. Ivan Drago. Oh, wait, I'm giving away my real voice. Oh, no. <laughs> Going back to that joke. <laughs> Since he is from the iconic Cold War film, Rocky IV, why don't we put that to one to Brian and see if Brian can help us settle that one? Yeah, the, the three of us will settle that at the end, later in the episode. All right, so stick around for that. The next one is Ryder from The Hitcher and Mr. Joshua from Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. Now, Mr. Joshua... It's kind of cool, but I went with Ryder on this one. Hmm. What do you say? He's more tactical. His planning is impeccable. When when they're in the jail 
Yeah. And he murders everyone in the police station mm. and manages to open the cell. Yeah. So the dude comes out yeah. and gets out of there and still gets the police to come there. Like his planning is great. He's amazing. But what about the military planning and training that Mr. Joshua must have as that special special forces group he was in? He got his beat by Riggs. Hmm. Well, they were both in the army or both in the military. And both had training. So Riggs was a military guy. Mm-hmm. Writer's an unknown. Yeah. He does seem like he must have some kind of experience because he's so and crafty. He murdered, murdered a bunch of people, but I think his smarts comes into this one. And he does, look, they're both psychopaths. They're both murderers. It does seem like he's, uh, Ryder's got a little more of that, I don't know, like thirst for blood. What do they call that? Je ne sais quoi. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I don't know what. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Ryder's just got a slight edge for me, but enough to make him uh, victorious. That was another one I had to scratch out and rewrite, though. Yeah, me originally had Joshua, and I changed it to Ryder. Me too. Me too. The last match we can decide right now, because one will be on Facebook poll and uh, Facebook poll and one we'll decide with our guest later today, is Johnny Lawrence versus Chong Lee. I think this one's easy for both of us. I don't know. For, for I've seen Johnny destroy some radios. Yep. <laughs> I've seen him sweep the leg. <laughs> yes. But I think Chong Lee is just too yes. much for him. <laughs> yes. Too much. I've seen an elderly man beat up Johnny and his friends at the same time. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think Chong Lee who, oh, and we've never seen Johnny murder anybody. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty sure Chong Lee's killed a bunch of people. Plus he's got the size, the strength over him, the experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. Okay. So it was, I thought maybe you were going to go with Johnny just because he's so damn cool, especially now in the Cobra Kai show. I absolutely love Johnny, but I'd be lying if I thought he could win this one. Yeah. It's not happening. All right, cool. That was an easy one. All right. So we've got uh, one that was uh, harder to decide. Mm-hmm. And that will turn to uh, folks on Facebook, one that we're going to decide a little bit later in the show. But otherwise, we uh, we have victors for at least six out of the <laughs> eight matches today. All right, very good. Awesome. And so in a moment, we'll be right back with our guest today, Dr. Brian Kogan. An associate professor in the Department of Communications at Malloy College, our guest today is also an author, pop culture expert, and musician. Armed with a PhD from NYU in media ecology, our guest's favorite areas of research include music, comic books, and the intersection of politics and pop culture. You may have heard him on any number of media outlets, including NPR and Chicago Public Radio. He's authored, co-written, or otherwise edited a number of books, including The Encyclopedia of Punk, Everything I Ever Needed to Know About, asterisk, I Learned from Monty Python, and Deconstructing South Park, Critical Examinations of Animated Transgression. Currently, our guest is working on Nerdcore, a book about the history of satirical music. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Brian Kogan. <laughs> Hey, Brian. The frog says we're watching Muppet Show here. Yay! <laughs> Yay, and that's how we feel to have you on the show. You know, Brian, as folks heard in your introduction, you've certainly been involved in a number of things that involve media in various ways and pop culture. How do you explain, I suppose, what you teach? Here's the big thing is that, like, most professors at most colleges don't 
teach pop culture because it's looked down upon, mm-hmm. which I think is kind of sad. When I was in grad school, my advisor said, like, well, you can do any projects for, like, say, Batman, Ooh. and then laughed. I'm like, you know, but that's my, I want to do Batman. <laughs> what's wrong with Batman? And I'm not even a Batman fan. I'm like, you yeah. know, like, the, what's wrong with that kind of, like, right. sort of, like, idea? Like, you know, why can't we talk about popular culture? Why can't we talk about movies? And in my field, it was considered back in the day, like 20 years ago, not silly, but like, like, you know, not serious. Right. And so to me, it's like, you know, like this stuff, since I got out of grad school and I got tenure, it's been like, you know, pop culture nonstop. I can't not talk about this stuff. It's like, you know, this is A, what my students like, Mm -hmm. and it's B, it's like what I want to talk about. (laughs) And I'm lucky enough I can do this, like, you know, and get actually paid, Right. (laughs) not get laid off. You know, and it seems, it's surprising to me that it ever was that way, because like you're saying, it seems like a way to get folks to pay attention, but also I'm sure one of the reasons it's like you're suggesting, it's a good uh, vessel for, for teaching is how many lessons and different meanings and themes and et cetera can be extrapolated from these stories or the, the type of media that it is. Oh, it, it's definitely that. And it's also one of the things where I think both of you might recall being in classes in, you know, junior high, high school, college, and it's like trying to stay awake before cell phone. <laughs> yes. Not just oh, going, gosh, like, yes. Oh, here we go. Look, you know, yeah. look at this. <laughs> and like, you know, why is this so boring? Why can't they talk about something we're interested in? Yeah. And to me, it was like, you know, like movies, TV shows, et cetera. Like, why not talk about this stuff? Yeah, I remember developing, you're right, we didn't have cell phones. I remember looking at the clock behind the teachers and like dividing it up in my mind. All right, look, yes. I just got to make it for 15 more minutes. And then boom, <laughs> I'd do that in 15 minute segments and soon enough, the class would be over. I know, and I couldn't wait. Yeah, explains my grades. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, on this show, everybody knows that we love to use pop culture as an opportunity to learn about something. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In particular, of course, the the intersection, the nexus, I guess, of Cold War and pop culture. And I think because, like we've talked about many times on this show, the 1980s was a hearkening back to the 1950s in so many regards. I think, you know, we should just sort of, I guess, touch base on what is the Cold War and what that pop culture was, you know, 30 years before the 1980s, because that's when it it all began. Um, of course, just so folks know, right, the Cold War was the period of time after World War II where we were sort of at uh, detente, I guess, with uh, Russia. Even though we fought the Nazis together, the period that followed was, you know, one where we saw each other which, uh, with uh, mutual suspicion. Yeah, I mean, like a typical, say, 1940s film was Mission to Moscow, which was like an us, like, you know, yay, it's us and Stalin fighting the Nazis, yeah. <laughs> which the Nazis, once again, bad people, once again, all you kids out there, punch a Nazi. They're always at That's right. But we did have this idea back in from the 40s to the present that what if we can engage with the Soviets? Right. But, uh, you know, obviously towards the end of the 80s, we had the fall of the Soviet Union. But in that 40-year span, I guess, from the early 50s to the end of the 80s, it was a tension-filled time. And that was reflected in a lot of the media. Uh, in the 50s, since we were scared of the bomb and scared of the Russians, we had a lot of alien invasion films and films where... Uh, with atomic themes, uh, even Godzilla itself, you know, it's a suggestion that- I actually, weirdly enough, just taught a, a guest lecture in a class about Japanese new wave yep. and mentioned that Godzilla is like, you know, the only country that got bombed yep. with nuclear bomb was Japan. And so Godzilla's a natural reaction. If you watch the original Godzilla, which is an amazing film, without the Raymond Burr, like American version. <laughs> right, yeah. It's just kind of weird. Um, it's It's- <laughs> Astounding how they, it's, it's, it's them dealing with grief and loss and like monsters. 
Right. But yeah, it, it keeps going onwards and onwards in American culture in particular about like, you know, okay, we're dealing with this. And I recall, and I think you guys are like a little bit younger than me, but I was scared of a bomb going off in New York when I was growing up. I was honestly scared. Like at one point that things will go wrong. Yeah. Mary and I've talked about this on many occasions. It was a fear that carried me into the nineties and beyond, you know, probably through September 11th, it felt like this kind of realization of, yeah, this is what we were worried about. It's coming finally. It it does create a, uh, a live fast, you could die young kind of feeling. Hmm. So you have to try and pack everything in before they drop the bomb on you. Yeah. It's kind of how the eighties felt. I think it was one of those things where I grew up in the punk rock community and all the flyers were about Reagan and like, you know, don't let Ron Reagan Mm -hmm. handle the bomb, et cetera. And there's so many bands like singing about this back in the day. And I'm like, you know, yeah, I am. I'm like, I'm a paper route. I'm kind of scared. Like, you know, (laughs) living papers, like, you know, what if it ends tomorrow? And it's one of those things where it's, it was in pop culture before I saw movies about the bomb or about the Russians, et cetera. It was there before, say, Red Dawn, Rocky IV, et cetera. Maybe the earlier films that did deal with it. But it was a scary thing, honestly. Yeah. I'm, I'm not even joking. It was like I was honestly scared as like a, a, a teen. Right. What will happen? How will we live through this? Yeah. Oh, I always just assume we wouldn't. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that was, was that was my assumption. But what about the drills, Ray? We were preparing by going under a chair or something. I was... knew those drills where they sent me oh. out in the hallway to sit there. Yes, oh. yes. I hear I, a I hear a siren going off when they're like the bombs are coming. I'm not going out in the hallway. <laughs> I'm going to end like a man or a boy. I'll whatever. Just, I'll just sit there at my desk coloring or whatever. I'm going to pretend to kiss a girl. That's right. <laughs> kiss a girl before the bomb goes off. To some extent, my understanding is from some of my. You know, my layperson's research, I haven't had the benefit of one of your classes, <laughs> at least historically, and maybe until the 80s. You know, some folks have written that uh, in part our pop culture, our Cold War pop culture, 50s, 60s, was being able to assuage, you know, some of these anxieties. There was a way to, you know, subvert, I guess, our concerns. It seems different in the 80s to me because, you know, we kick off the 80s with these, you know, post-apocalyptic films, a lot of them, like Ray's talking about what the landscape looks like. It's going to be hard to survive if, if, if you survive at all, you know, and you've got uh, like Road Warrior, Road Warrior at the beginning of the, yeah, yeah. the decade. I think the, the earlier films, like I said, like you, if you want to like trace it from the 40s, you get films like, you know, we're working with the Soviets, we're going to beat Hitler. Right. In the 50s, you get like a lot of films like, you know, like even Invasion of the Body Snatchers, people... Oh, the original text is not based on this. It's like, what if we'll become communists, mm-hmm. et cetera. Billy Wilder's one of his last great films is one, two, three in 1961. And it's about like, you know, the Soviets are goofy and you get the Soviets mm-hmm. are goofy going on from the sixties, seventies to almost the eighties mm-hmm. in a lot of the ways that like, you know, these guys are not serious. Right. They're goofballs. So like, you know, like who's the glorious leader this day. Don't remind <laughs> me. I know who it is. Right. And then it, the 80s come and things change. Again, thinking about some of the um, folks that have written about this, this idea that throughout the history, starting in the 50s, again, that some of the, our pop culture was used to influence how Definitely. we perceived the other countries and probably vice versa. So to your point, it seems like, therefore, that this making them seem goofy was for us to seem less of a threat. Is that what you're saying? So therefore, we wouldn't I, be as afraid? I think in certain ways it was, for example, like the Munsters, the Flintstones, mm. Rocky and Bullwinkle had like, you know, like the classic <laughs> like Soviet villains, but they're goofy. Yeah, They're not enemies 
which I think is a way, if you want, like into psychology, it's like, you know, if you're scared, which people are very scared back in those days and in some ways still are, making an enemy goofy is a way of like getting through fear. And I think that that's what changes things in the 80s where we try and get this trend in the movies. And but I love that I grew up in the 80s. I watched almost all those films. Once again, I never watched Top Gun. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry. Tom Cruise can forgo the royalties for me not watching it. <laughs> He's doing okay. Good. He'll be fine. But it, it becomes this era, they engage with the Soviets in ways that are like, you know, both hilarious and scary. I mean, do both of you remember watching a film like, say, Red Dawn? Of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's one where we were like, all right, if they do fly down, mm-hmm. yes. all right, right. we're going to need guns, right. pickup trucks, gear, and head to the mountains. Where are the mountains at because i gotta find some we're gonna have to dig a lot of holes to hide in yeah tunnels wolverines (laughs) yeah i did the same thing right i remember getting home and my friends that were hung out in the neighborhood like figuring out who's who's gonna be the hunters who's gonna be the gatherers yeah yeah yeah. oh yeah and it was one of the films that said like you know this could actually happen Mm -hmm. and the latest from the west and the east etc and i'm like you know i remember watching it in the theater and going like you know i don't think this is actually going to happen this way (laughs) but it's going to (laughs) happen But it, but it could happen. It may happen, but it's it's not going to happen. Like you know, like it's like they're going to come in from two corridors. Like you know, right. how does this work? I don't understand this. <laughs> so what changed? Why would you had pointed out in earlier decades we were sort of you know making light of these you know the, the fewer. But in the 80s, it changed again. And it seems like for the most part, maybe except for spies like us, I think we had some fun with it again. But that's in the middle of the Which 80s. Funny. But there are so many films in the beginning of the 80s and, and even towards the end. That were just terrifying. That's just, you know, not that the intention was to terrifying us, terrify us, but it took it seriously. Like you're saying about Red Dawn, we felt like it could happen. The day after, we felt like it could happen. Yeah, it was one of those things where people could not be silly about it for so long. And eventually people said, like, you know, this is an actual threat. And it was one of those things where Hollywood, at least mainstream Hollywood, there's like lots of great independent films about this kind of stuff too. It became a trope that you could sell films in a certain way if they're about the Soviets and about like this threat that's Mm. out there, which I think we both, we all three agreed that was like, you know, it was, it was kind of scary, really. Do you think it changed when Thatcher and Reagan came into office and Reagan was like beefing up the military and the Star Wars talk and all that. Do you think that's when they started taking them more seriously in the I movies? Think, I think 100% that it was not as big a deal for, and I can't recall much about 77 to 81 because I was pretty young, but I definitely saw, and it was like amping it up. The U.S. was trying to say, like, you know, like, you want to do this? Bring it on. And the Soviets were like, up until Gorbachev, like, okay, we're going to do this. And I think that that led to at least a lot of people my age going, Things are escalating. And I think that a lot of people, for good or bad, thought movies will now show us how scary things can be. So once again, Red Dawn, actual invasion, like, you know, like they're coming into our country. That's like, it's real. It's like not for maybe not for people in New York like me, but it's like, you know, this could happen in your high school. So get ready. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I have my nail file and I have a scissors <laughs> and like, yeah. you know. Okay, I'm ready to fight the yes. Soviets. You start learning how to speak Russian. You're just going to turn yourself over. <laughs> I'll make a great snitch. <laughs> so it sounds almost like the way you're describing it is it became this sort of cycle where they really there was a threat, yes, but then films would scare us, then we would be scared, which created a market for Hollywood then to feed us what we wanted, which was to be scared about nuclear war and so on. And- oh, exactly. Like I think War Games, for example, is a classic version of that, where War Games is... It's a brilliant film. I've watched it recently again. 
It's really well done. My older brother was a hacker and he could actually hack into government databases back in those days in like 81 or so, because it was so easy. But the idea that we have these programs, which we did, which could have led to nuclear war in a minute. Yes. In retrospect is so scary because it was not that far from being reality. But War Games is a film, which is, it's about hacking. It's also about like, you know, how can we stop this? How can we not let this go on? Right. Like it's one of those movies where it's kind of optimistic in that we don't have to go this way. Mm. We can stop it. And I think there's two different versions of those, once again, 80s films about the Soviets. And 10% are more or less like we're doomed. It's going to go bad. And 90%, including Rocky IV, are like, you know, we can make a difference in some ways. Like, you know, I'm sure you both have seen Rocky IV like a million times. Like I have. Yes. Like he's like running up the hill with like the, the logs <laughs> on his back. And like, <laughs> Hell yeah. He creates the modern modern montage like thing, like, you know, do it in a montage. <laughs> yep. And Drago is like the ultimate Soviet quote unquote stooge back in those days. I must break you. Go for it. I'm not, I'm not gonna like you know like kill you. I must break you yes. is the actual line. Hmm. And that he's like, you know, like the pumped up steroid, like you know, like running on the treadmill. Soviet guy, caricature of all we think about the Soviet Union. And then Rocky beats him, but does not kill him, which is what he expected. Right. And then Gorbachev gets up and does a slow clap in the background. (laughs) And I'm like, you know, this is hopeful. This Mm. is Americans thinking, yes, we have an enemy, but we can actually get rapport. We can actually work with them. And I think that was kind of like a, a leap yeah. For American 80s movies. Because once again, I have not seen Top Gun. Yeah. But as I recall, like, they're just the enemy. We're going to kill them in the air, et cetera. Like, you know, like, knock them down. Yeah, and they're not identified as being from a specific country. The insignia seems to suggest they're North Korean, but they never say it. I thought that was a volleyball movie. <laughs> <laughs> Why are all these films and summer subtexts? Yeah About, like, the Soviet Union in the 80s. Like, why are so many films about, like, you know, we could die? <laughs> I mean, even a great film like Repo Man, which is one of my favorite films of all time. Absolutely. Like a hidden weapon. And where's it come from? We don't know, but it's in the backseat. I'm sorry, the trunk of the car. Mm-hmm. How come Rocky Four? they make America like the underdog when we're actually the more superpower? Well, I think it's because the idea was, as we deal with Germany back in the day of World War II, the Soviets seemed to be winning like every Olympic game, et cetera. And the assumption was like they're on steroids right. on like, you know, <laughs> almost a master race like the Germans were. Sure. And it's one of those things where it's like, we can't beat them naturally. Rocky has to train. Rocky has to like, you know, run in the snow, et cetera. <laughs> and it's like, you know, we can't beat these guys until we get to their level. It's almost like a video game. Mm-hmm. Like we need to hit the big right. boss. And I think it's one of those things where like in the 80s, we're like, you know, we can't compete. Was the 80 was the miracle on the ice? Yeah, 80, yeah. Yeah, yeah well, in the hockey game, like that was a huge deal. That was like, you know, USA, USA, USA. And I think the 80s films were like more or less based on that. Like, you know, we're still fighting these guys. Right. I was um, coming from a friend's wedding, driving my car home late at night and heard that the Berlin Wall had fallen. And I was like, this is like a deal breaker. This is astounding. This is like, you know, I didn't think it was happening in my lifetime. Rocky IV kind of presage this. Rocky IV is like, you know, like, we'll eventually get to be friends with these guys. I wonder if, you know, thinking about the films, you know, we talked about these sort of post-apocalyptic or, you know, we're at threat level midnight sort of, you know, uh, films of the early 1980s. Rocky V does seem to be kind of this, uh, 
Rocky Four. Rocky Four, rather, seems to be in 1985. I meant to say Rocket Four. <laughs> does seem to be this, you know, pivot or pivot point, sort of where we where even the films start to change. Is there any chance? And we know that Gorbachev comes to power like in mid 80s, yeah. and then he's trying to liberal liberalize the Soviet Union, which will collapse in a few few years. Is it possible the films influence the political agendas abroad, or were we just reflecting them? Because you know your, your comment you make about Rocky Five being you know prescient is Rocky Four. Rocky Four being prescient was Rocky Five. Rocky Tommy Gunn. <laughs> Rocky Five is Tommy Gunn. Tommy Gunn. It's a terrible movie. <laughs> Rocky Four being prescient, uh, or maybe it had an influence. I don't think it necessarily had an influence. I think it reflected what's going on in culture at that time, where people wanted things to change, want things to get better. Yep. And I think that a lot of people felt the same way as the producers and, you know, like the, the screenwriters, et cetera, who are thinking like, why do we have to live this way? And I hmm. honestly, I think it reflected a, a zeitgeist of people thinking that we can make this work. Rocky four kind of makes sense in that, like, you know, I never thought I'd say this in my life. <laughs> Rocky four so much then. Like, you know, let's, let's hug it out. Bitch. Let's like, you know, like, you know, do, we can get along. And I think that that's one of the unique things about all those films of that time period, that they're trying to work out what is really going on. Yeah. Again, looking at the thing about Rocky Five and what you just said, it is interesting to me now. Rocky Four. Rocky Four. Stop, stop saying Dude. Rocky Five. You're going to have a lot so of editing. editing involved right it's, it's now. So much editing like, like later on. It's because it like, came you know. out. And I'm not, this is all going in. All my mistakes <laughs> go in. Yeah, right. It's interesting to look at the films that came after it, you know, to your point about you know, and again, again, was it reflecting or I guess you're saying it wasn't influencing, but reflecting what was going on because Top Gun, again, the enemy now is nameless, you know, as far as the country, you had Iron Eagle after Top Gun, which now the enemy shifts to middle, some fictional Middle Eastern country. Oh, of course. And that's, I think it's a, it's a genre shift that happens many times. Like the Germans are the villains in so many films yeah. after World War II, look at Indiana Jones, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a given that you need a bad guy. Yeah. And I think that that's a major selling point for a lot of producers and directors. Like, let's do a film about the Russians, even like Spies Like Us, yeah. which is a goofy film, which almost ends with an apocalypse. It almost ends <laughs> with like, you know, the world's going to end until they figure out how to yeah. fix it. And I like it. It's like, you know, Stan Aykroyd, Terry Gilliam shows up, Bob Hope shows up. Yeah. A lot of directors cameo in that film. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing in some ways, but it's one of those things where like, you know, it's the backdrop is still at any moment, the bomb could drop. Right. James Bond, the franchise did at least, at least two in the eighties where it's like, you know, like they're trying to stop Spectra right. or another like villainous organization from like starting a war. It's reflecting how I feel. It's reflecting how the audience feels. It's reflecting how people want to see something that either early on says we're in a war and later on in the 80s says, we can stop this. So are you saying that since we stopped the nuclear war in most of these movies, that didn't ease your mind at all in the 80s? <laughs> well, I, I might be a bit older than you guys, but it, it eased my mind in some ways. Like war games, for example, ends with like a simulated nuclear war. When the computer, I guess they call it AI now, yeah. figures out there's no winners and losers here. Everyone dies and goes back to chess. And I think that that to mean, I guess it was 82, 83. 83, yeah, 83, yeah. But to me, it's like, you know, the futility of nuclear war was something I had not thought about as seriously when I was like, you know, 13, 14 years old as I do now, but realized how close it was to things actually going south. 
and I think it might be, I could be wrong with this, as it goes to the later 80s, getting more hopeful that we yeah. can do this. We can, like, you know, survive this. We can work together. Yeah, you're absolutely right. As, as, as far as, you know, us taking a look at what films, how they evolved over the 1980s, because again, war games and you had those sort of more real, not necessarily realistic, but less hopeful films. Rocky Four being this sort of uh, pivot point where the films that followed stopped identifying Russians as the enemy and had more of a sense of being able to cooperate, um, including Red Heat in 1988, where, you know, you'd literally have a Soviet police officer coming to work with a Chicago cop. There's a couple of other films at the end of the 80s that stand out as Cold War films, including Rent, Hunt for Red October, which is in 1990. But No Way Out, Hunt for Red October are actually based on literature that happened earlier. So Hunt for Red October was based on a book from the yeah. earlier 80s when we were more afraid, again, of the threat that was literally below the surface, you know, like in the film, it's literally below the surface of the water. And, and No Way Out, where we, it was more espionage-based, was actually based on a story from the 1940s that had nothing to do with the Russians. So I think you're right. I think the the pop culture does reflect that a greater sense of hope towards the end of the 1980s. It's curious to me that in, sort of in the middle of these films where less, you know, more dire, leading up to being more hopeful, we had a few films that focused on defection, you know, where it was this yes. pitching America was the place to be. Russia sucks. You are Soviet. The Soviet Union sucks. You want to be here. You know, almost like this, uh, you know, come to the U.S. sort of uh, marketing campaign that maybe was borderline propaganda with, you know, of course it was. some of these films. But then again, you had a bunch of famous um, Soviet ballet dancers defecting. Sure. I mean, like people are like, okay, I'm in the U.S., like I'm, I'm done. And of <laughs> course, they, you know, it's easier, more money, et cetera. Like, you know, but also like, you know, why would you want to stay in the USSR and dance and be like followed around by, because it did happen. People like would follow them around. Like guys, like, you know, like agents, like looking for those guys, seeing what they're doing, et cetera. Women too. I mean, it's one of those things where like things did change and people did come to the U.S. And we had some movies about that. And it's kind of interesting to think that things like, say, Moscow on the Hudson. Robin Williams, by the way, he was so talented, made so few good films. <laughs> Most known for Mrs. Doubtfire and things like that, which was like, you know, oh, yeah. my God, this guy's got such talent. <laughs> and he could do like the, the Russian accent so well, like, you know, like playing a saxophone at the window. I haven't seen Coming to America, the sequel yet. Right. It's just out now. But it's like, you know, America's always been in so many films like this, like, you know, great country to go to, et cetera. Even in Taxi, when Latka wants to go to mm. America. Sure. And um, there's this huge thing about like, you know, like his mom in this fake, like whatever, like Eastern European accent. So like, you, know, you want to go to America? And he's, no, I want to go to America. And this big stars and stripes with fireworks <laughs> explodes around him. <laughs> yeah, this is. This is what's going on back in those days. Is there something that distinguishes the, what happened in the 1980s as far as the pop culture relative to the Cold War, politics, that is different than decades since or the decades before? Well, to the theme of, once again, this podcast, yes, please. the 80s were better. And I can say that because yes! I, looked, I looked much better than I did in the 80s. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, it's a coming to terms with the Cold War which is a slow process, which if you want to trace it from 1981 to say 90 or like Hunter Red October, where people, I'm sorry, not people, let's just say filmmakers, okay. people are changing as well. Um, people are watching films that go from once again, like, you know, like they're going to kill us, they're horrible, et cetera, to they're just like us. Hmm. And I honestly, I've been teaching like film and that kind of stuff for years now. 
people are not directly influenced. Like it makes you do something. But as a background, you eventually kind of say like, you know, okay, I'm learning things. Like, for example, so many of my friends and relatives became like more open to gay people, LGBTQ, et cetera, over the last 20 years than ever seen back in the 70s and 80s. Yeah. They get it now. It's like, you know, they're just like us. They're, they are us, et cetera. Right. And with the Soviets back in the 80s, it becomes like from like, they're going to kill us to wait they're not going to kill us. They're kind of like we are, and they don't want to have to like live this life and they want to like applaud Rocky. Right. I think that's a good evolution. That's a really positive thing to happen. And in a lot of ways, like, like, thank God it happened. It made our lives better. Very good. So we'll leave that at that, but I don't want to let you go without asking you another important question. And if you don't want to answer, you don't have an opinion on this. That's okay. Um, Mets, Mets are better than the Yankees. <laughs> are you, oh, that, you're that guy. Oh. That was not the question. No. <laughs> No, but along those lines, but more in the vein of Cold War, you know, we have our sports, quote unquote, sports bracket. Ray follows sports. I I don't follow sports. I know balls are involved, but that's the extent of my knowledge. That's a different topic entirely. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, completely. I don't know if he meant balls or he meant sports or either, both. Both. But uh, our bracket this month is Smash Madness, where we've got uh, 16, well, it began with 16 fictional heroes and 16 fictional villains fighting it out. Ultimately, we're going to get to final two. Speaking of the Cold War. Who do you believe would win, Ivan Drago or Khan Noonien Singh? I would say both are enhanced. Oh, both have been given like you know like a lot of chemicals and things, etc. Mm. But I think the Khan, and I'll just shout Khan, <laughs> would win because he's more of a tactician mm. as well as a very strong guy. Interesting. What do you think, Ray? Did you? What do you think about that one? Uh, I was leaning towards Drago. Mm. Just because I think if he could just get one good shot in, mm. I, I think he could take him out. He would break him. He would break him. I mean, he said he was going to do it. Yeah, but then he didn't, though. But then all five foot eight of yeah, Rocky beat six foot four uh, Drago. You know, R- Rocky's been brain damaged for three other movies at this point. Mm. That makes you the tiebreaker, Will. Oh, it does. Oh, well, then I don't have to go with our guest, I think, just by the nature of her being our guest. Plus, also, I think I agree with him. <laughs> That's fine. Back to Kermit. Because he was very strong. <laughs> Brian, thank you so very much for your time today. It's been enlightening. And ultimately, of course, what I heard from all this was the 80s were better. They were. So, you know, I learned a lot of things today, especially from Brian. Uh, really, for me, he affirmed that we're on the right path just generally with this show. The fact that we place an importance on pop culture as a means to understand our society in a, you know, a bigger way, I suppose. Yeah. And learn more about the relationship between what was going on in the world and what was going on, uh, you know, as far as the uh, pop culture at those various times throughout our history. But I don't know if we've proven anything about the 1980s. We have proven. Oh. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay. That the movie, yep. The Day After, right. <laughs> convinced Ronald Reagan yeah. <laughs> to call Gorbachev mm. and get rid of a lot of bombs. Did you prove that? Yes. We sure did. Hey guys, it's Will with a show note. After we recorded this episode, we did some more digging into this myth about the connection between The Day After and Ronald Reagan's uh, nuclear disarmament policies, if you want to call it that of the later 1980s. And it's more complicated than the myth would have you believe. 
uh, including the fact that Gorbachev wasn't actually in power until two years after the TV show aired, and the fact that Reagan had been a pacifist as early as the 1940s. So uh, we'll provide some more information if you're interested on the Rumpus Room group, uh, the Facebook page. Otherwise, let's hear Ray finish the story because we love hearing Ray explain anything to us. I'm not even making that up. I know, yeah. I like the lengths you have to go to convince me that this isn't one of those things like where John Kreese was in Rambo 2 saying that he was going to build a karate school. Now, if you had actual audio from his house that day, yeah. all you would hear is Ronald Reagan going, holy f- we have to get rid of these bombs because this is bad. This is what it does. Like he didn't know what it did. <laughs> he might not have. Yeah, he, he might, might not have. And that's why mm. he went through all the trouble. Mm. I feel like I got to edit this into just stick this in our interview with Brian somewhere. Mm-mm. No, this stays and, right here. And then, then it makes sense that you say we proved it since nah. it didn't come up at all. It was a roundabout. <laughs> hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya. See ya.